Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Yesterday's adoption of a plan to close this year's state budget deficit is kind of like knowing that you have both a squirrel and a bear inside your house. Once you shoo the squirrel out, there's still a bit of work to do. Today, I think we can uh, celebrate the fact that we've come together. We're going to have a good bipartisan bill uh, and that it's, it's good for the residents and it's good for the businesses of the state and it's good for the long-term health of the state as well. That's Senate Majority Leader Bob Duff speaking to reporters yesterday after a bipartisan deal was reached that should, in theory, close this year's $220 million budget deficit. Of course, as we've seen, there's still time for that squirrel to cause problems before the fiscal year is over. Now for the bear. There's a $900 million hole in next year's budget that's looming, along with potentially thousands of layoffs of state employees. The promise of that drew hundreds of union workers to a rally outside the Capitol, many of them in the public safety sector. They were protesting the idea of layoffs and concessions. We're here today to call on our elected leaders to respect those who protect. That's Charles Delarocco from the Connecticut Public Safety Employees Coalition. Today, where we live, we'll enter the wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable, talk about some of what got done yesterday and what didn't. We'll consider some of the ideas that have been put on the table to solve next year's budget problem, including going after Yale's endowment. Talk about poking the bear. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Joining us, as always, is Colin McEnroe. He's the host of the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Hello, Colin. Good morning, Mr. Dankowski. Also with us is Dan Hart. He's columnist for the Hartford Current. Hello there, Danny. Good morning. And Harriet Jones is WNPR's business editor. Hello once again, Harriet. Good morning, John. So first of all, some big takeaways from yesterday's budget deal. Again, $220 million in current year deficit gets closed. It restores $140 million in hospital funding. Um, that's something that the governor was at odds with the hospitals and some uh, state lawmakers over. Uh, Dan, I'll ask you first, what are some of the big things that you think came out of yesterday? Well, uh, I think it's very positive uh, looking forward. Uh, it, it, when you look at that bear, I think the, the monster that what if, if the bear is this coming year, the real <laughs> monster is the $2 billion in 2018 uh, because I think now we have in our sights the ability to close the $900 million. When you look at the the, the real mo- more important number yesterday was about $85 million in what we might call real cuts. Uh, that is, a lot of things were lapses and, you know, things that weren't spent and one times. There's always a lot of chewing gum and, and popsicle, sti- <laughs> popsicle sticks. But there were about $85 million in real cuts. When you multiply that since we are one quarter of the way left to go. When you multiply that times four, we're looking, if you assume that those cuts continue into the next fiscal year, we're looking at about 320 or $350 million in cuts. And that gets you a pretty good way toward the goal. Not there at all by any means, but, but it's in sight. But, but I, just, I just do have to say, though, this isn't the first time that we've actually had to go back and tinker with this year's budget. There's a quarter, One way to look at it is there's a quarter left in the year. And if you play this out over the course of the next couple of years, those cuts will mean real money over the course of time. Another way to play this out is $220 million 
dollars might turn into, I don't know, another hundred million before the end of the fiscal year. Yeah, but we're going in the right direction. This was the first month when we had a downward revision absent any adjustments in the shortfall for the current year. Right. And I know it sounds like we're parsing a lot here. And to some extent, we're starting with this. We don't like to start with the small picture. We like to start with the big picture. But the reality is that it appears that with the, the March report and we're going on one month's report here from the, the uh, controller's office, that we're going in the right direction, at least. Connecticut going in the right direction? <laughs> not, that, not the overall right direction. Colin? <laughs> I know. I really like Danny on his new meds. <laughs> <laughs> That's like that's like the happiest version of this story. I, I guarantee really? you, there's no human being up on the state at the state capitol right now who could tell such a happy story. So I mean, I don't know. I don't want to be Debbie Downer, but I mean, the other way to look at this is, you know, we just went through some pretty horrible pains over 200, 220 million dollars, and even using Danny's math, I mean, that's a, still a 600 million dollar hole. Even multiplying it out, so that we, so that so that th- this round of, of actual reductions turns into 300 million, that's a 600 million dollar chasm that they're looking at next time, and and presumably this round of cuts also represents some pretty hard choices and some pretty significant amounts of pain spread across the social services sector and elsewhere. So I think still the question next round is where do you go? You know, where do you go next? Because you may have bitten this, this apple as many times as you can. Well, that's right. I, I feel like, you know, I, the, the chewing gum and the popsicle sticks were, what, about 40% of this they managed to find kind of under the couch cushions. Yes. That's non-repeatable. They can't do that again. And, you know, I guess the good news with this package yesterday was there is a slightly lighter touch on social services. Some of the rescissions that Governor Malloy announced a couple of weeks ago are stepped back by this, which is good. But then if you look at the things that they are taking money from that presumably, as Danny says, they're going to have to take more money from, next year, there are things like mental health and addiction services. So if we just look, you know, just at that one piece, you know, we're hearing families, we're in the middle of this heroin crisis, we're hearing families in the state say they can't find rehab beds, they're on waiting lists for weeks and weeks, people can't get into detox. That's, you know, a real need in this state, and we're talking about taking money away from it. And talking about taking money away from from that, Dan, and again, social services that so many people have, have been worried about in, in the governor's earlier plan, which, of course, this plan replaces, they're not untouched. We can't imagine that they're going to be untouched moving forward. Um, money going back into hospital funding, something that lawmakers were very keen to have happen, but Governor Malloy seems to have put a line in the sand about that, that moving forward probably state hospitals aren't going to expect the sorts of money coming from the state that they are right now. I mean, what else happens between now and this fix that's supposed to come in this 2017 uh, time for, for, you know, the chasm that Colin is talking about, a $600 million, if if your numbers are right? Well, layoffs. I think uh, we have to remember that uh, while many people are talking about ways to avoid layoffs through either concessions or something else, Uh, The governor has never held out that promise, and I think it should be pointed out that when the governor approached the unions on March 14th and said, I would like you to come to the table with concessions, he did not say, I would like for you to come to the table with concessions for the purpose of avoiding layoffs. That did happen in 2011. That was the entire tenor of the deal in 2011 was you give us X, Y, and Z, and that's a nice list of stuff that obviously – leads the union members to believe they've already given at the office uh, in exchange for an extension of the 
pretty good pension uh, and and uh, medical plan through 2022 and in exchange for a no layoff guarantee. This time, just as the pension and health plan ga- uh, uh, opener is not on the table on the union side, the no layoff guarantee is not on the table from the governor. It's happening. And, and here's what the governor had to say about that yesterday. We're here today to call. <laughs> here's the here's the other one. That's not the governor, certainly. Uh, 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 in the not-too-distant future. I don't think there's a whole lot we can do about that. Uh, Because I was talking over him. He said we're going to have a substantial number of layoffs in the not-too-distant future. I don't think there's a whole lot we can do about that. That sounds fairly definitive, Colin. Yeah, and I don't know. I mean, this whole thing has become kind of repetitious for me. I say stuff on this show, and then I go to my computer, and there's angry emails from state employees, and there's some idiot named David who's got four tweets up about me. Uh, and, And I guess one of the things that I feel – I was thinking about this this morning, and I was thinking the guy you just heard, Dan Malloy, was a guy who in 2010 got elected with substantial state union support. I mean basically the wave that took him into office was a state union wave. And although things have changed and it's been – you know he's on his second term now and it's a, 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 a rockier relationship, that's still basically who he is, and they have this kind of relationship with him. And I think he feels as though he's never gotten the kind of cooperation ever from day one in 2011 that he really needed to to restore some fiscal soundness to the state. And people get mad at me. I'm like a lifelong stereotypical liberal Democrat. If you, if you have a problem with me on the left, you know, uh, if you're a state union sympathizer or a state union member, you should think about how it is that you lost me. Either I got older and cranky and more conservative or your message isn't so good anymore. I think the optics of these demonstrations – uh, and, and the messages of some of the advertisements they're running are are not going to work. They're going to fall on deaf ears. I think the average person now sees this fairly or unfairly as a situation where they are essentially campaigning for a lot of fringe benefits that they're, the people who pay state taxes don't get. Um, and, and that, you know, the, their messaging hasn't been really particularly good. And when I see those demonstrations out of the Capitol, you know what I see? I see a Republican governor in the next cycle. You know, I mean, I, I just think it's an invitation to, to change parties and, and let the Republicans take a whack at this. All right, I'm going to have to stand to the left of Colin. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I guess, you know, the, the, the question, though, is what do layoffs necessarily do to the state economy? And, you know, you're talking to somebody who just spent three hours at the DMV the other day. I was one of those oh, people good for you. in the line. <laughs> so there's one, you know, you know, how do you provide state services if you are getting rid of the people who are actually doing the work? Um, but also, you know, we've just seen a drastic revision in how well the state did in creating jobs last year. I mean, it was the, the data was absolutely incredible. Um, and if we're talking about laying off more people, you know, obviously there's a, there's a price to be paid on the other side of that too. Uh, could I just could I just interject this so I'm not misunderstood because I will be misunderstood anyway. But like just to what Danny was saying before, I I. I don't like layoffs either. I think layoffs are bad. I think layoffs are bad because people lose their jobs and then state services go down. I'm constantly in favor of salary revision, benefit revision, with the goal of preserving as many state jobs as possible. I think it's too bad that things deteriorated so much that, as Dan has written about and has said here today, you're not even having that dichotomous conversation anymore. It's kind of like all kinds of pain all the time. But but I think layoffs are a bad idea. But if we're not going to have layoffs, then we're going to have to have those substantial revisions. And one point you made, Dan, and maybe you'd like to say more about it, is 
the, the, the sort of Damocles of layoffs hovers differently over different kinds of state employees. It's kind of a last-in, first-out situation. So maybe some of the people who's, who should be thinking about revisions don't have to fear layoffs anyway. And that's precisely the reason why it's very difficult to get benefits concessions because I talked with, for example, a worker at DCF who had, I believe, seven years in DCF. And seven years is not a lot for state employment. You know, there are a lot of people with a lot of seniority. Uh, and I said, oh, geez, you know, you must be concerned if there's going to be a 5% across the board cut, which roughly 2,000 layoffs, which is the number being talked about, is, you, you must be worried. He goes, absolutely not. He says, there's plenty of people that have been hired in the last couple of years. We're not worried. Right? Only the people – this is in one particular area. Right Now, it, it, the bumping rights make Why this – Why are those people hired, hired? Don't they have stuff to do? Like aren't there kids to serve and stuff? Well, there, there are <laughs> – Like people who need help? There are about 1,000 uh, retirements a year, uh, a little bit more than that. Uh, it's 1,000 to 1,500, I believe, retirements a year. In the spring retirement season, as the governor has been referring, uh, there, there are typically more than 200 in a month. And he is hoping uh, that by sort of jawboning retirement, he's been talking about retirement quite a lot lately, uh, as you know, uh, and he's hoping to get a really big number, which is expected to be announced, uh, the the month's number is going to be announced next week. And I think he's hoping against hope that instead of the typical 220 or so for April, that it's in the you know, mid t- num- t- uh, hundreds of numbers. Okay, so 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 he's hoping for an, an awful lot of layoffs. But I mean, g- getting back to this this notion that Colin floated at you in the first place, which is, you know, look, this system that we have means that the people who should come to the table in the governor's mind with some concessions have no reason to whatsoever. There's no incentive for them to. And so, well, then what happens? That's, we- yeah, that's not entirely true. And the reason for that is because we all like stability. And uh, the bumping process that the state employees went through in a layoff of roughly this size in 2003, which, of course, was unwound at enormous expense to the taxpayers. That was the Roland uh, botched layoffs that, that led to the $125 million settlement. That layoff led to a, a, an extraordinarily messy series of bumping and bumping rights and all that. It is an ugly process. If you're in it, you want to avoid it. There is some significant incentive to avoid it. You don't know where you're going to be. You're guaranteed a job, perhaps, but you're not guaranteed the same job. You're not get, you could end up having to drive to Torrington where there's no, no state university. That, you, you, all kinds of problems. Um, I think I, if you have to drive to Torrington, you're really being punished. Well, that's exactly <laughs> what I'm now, now. I'm not in favor of that. But I should I, – I, I, I just want to yeah. quickly add that there's a, there, there is another problem with this, which is the unions are not going to negotiate a partial layoff. That's a problem. That's something unions don't do. You can't say there are going to be 2,000. We'll give you X if it comes down to 1,000. That's what the governor wants them to do. That's not what the unions are going to do. I, I quickly want to, want to get to Jim in Windsor. Who it's, my screen here says that I agree with Colin, so I just thought, I thought I should put you on the air. Hi, Jim. Hi. Well, go ahead. What's on your mind? I hardly ever agree with Colin, but this time he's right on point. Uh, why doesn't the union say they? Why can't they do something simple and saying, "Can't we just take across the board everybody's salaries a little bit, and then and then maybe do something radically about this pension padding that they do all the time at the prisons?" Uh, Jim, thank you very much, Colin. Well, first of all, Danny and Harriet are both a lot more knowledgeable about this uh, than I am. But um, and one problem with this is the contracts come open at different times, um, so you can't really. Uh, it's it's difficult to apply a, a pay cut across the board. But I mean, I'm a broken record on this. I've said that you know since 2011, basically, 
that was the time to do some kind of blue ribbon, blue ribbon salary revision process where you really sort of looked at state salaries, maybe did comparisons of them to comparably sized states with comparably sized needs. You know, not everybody's overpaid to the state level, too. There's a lot of, you know, data entry clerks at DMV who are getting, you know, making $40,000 a year or something. And, you know, I mean, not everybody is wildly overpaid, but I don't think we've ever looked at it systematically. And it may be almost too late to look at it systematically. Now it's more like kind of this scorched earth process. I, and we just got another tweet from Jeff who says, who kidnapped the real Colin McEnroe? I've never agreed with him on anything. This is an imposter, but a smart one, says Jeff. A quick thought here, and just coming back to the overall jobs numbers, though, and what some of this means for the, for the state economy. Layoffs of thousands of state workers is not nothing. That's, that, is, that is a lot of people out of work. That has a downstream effect. There's all sorts of issues that we have to think about there. And when it comes to providing state services, who's going to provide them? It, it just starts to make the overall economic outlook of the state look even that much gloomier. And it's pretty gloomy already. And I think that's what we're running into with this entire, um, you know, we're cl- trying to claw our way back from something we didn't really expect. And part of that is to do with we thought we were going to have a whole lot more state income tax revenue because we thought we were doing a whole lot better on the jobs picture in in the private sector than we really were. Uh, And, you know, that's where some of that gap has come from. Uh, When we come back, we're going to talk about whether or not some of those taxes have forced people out of state, whether or not big Connecticut businesses are going to start fleeing, whether or not Yale University is going to move to Florida. I I doubt that's going to happen. We're talking with Harriet Jones, Dan Haar, and Colin McEnroe in the wheelhouse here on Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. I just want to let you know that coming up tomorrow, you can join us in Winstead, Connecticut, my hometown at the American Museum of Tort Law. I'll sit down with Ralph Nader, the consumer advocate who started the American Museum of Tort Law last year. We're going to learn about his museum. We'll also get some of his thoughts on the 2016 presidential race. That's tomorrow's show. We'll be broadcasting live from there. If you want to find out more and join us, you can go to our Facebook page. Today, it's The Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. We're in The Wheelhouse with Harry Jones, WNPR's business editor, Dan Haar, the columnist for The Hartford Current, and our own Colin McEnroe. What's on your show today, Colin, at one? Uh, we're doing a show about uh, the disease known as ALS. Um, we're doing it partly because of this remarkable documentary about a painter uh, named John Ember, uh, who uh, continued to paint right up to the moment of, of his death, despite the fact that his limbs were basically becoming increasingly more useless. But ways were found uh, to sort of guide his arms and, and help him paint. So it's an incredible story. But we're also it's a very mysterious disease and one that I've been kind of confronted with uh, uh, kind of tragically for the last year. And so we'll talk a little bit more about it, what it is. It's, it's, a, it's a lot more than ice bucket challenges, not that those were not a great way to raise money. Mm, Colin McEnroe this afternoon on the Colin McEnroe Show. Hope you can join us. In the first segment of the program, we talked about a budget deal that was reached yesterday at the state capitol to close a relatively small hole in the state budget. There's a much bigger hole looming, and as we've said, even bigger holes looming in, in the coming years. So state lawmakers have been thinking about a lot of different ways to try to find money. During these discussions, um, they've talked about many ideas, including involving Yale University taxing its endowment. It has, uh, well, actually gotten some people uh, very, very worried about what this would mean for other nonprofit entities. I'll just ask you first, Dan Har, what do you think about the notion that lawmakers are going to go after the endowment of Yale University as a way to raise money for the state? Well, it's obviously an unconstitutional and a bad idea. However, there is money to be had somewhere in that their university. If it's done correctly, there are ways to 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 find there. There are ways to get some of that money into our. I can't pockets. wait to hear and what I, are they? What? 
Well, one thing I have in mind, which would be more equitable, is that you know, no, you can't tax the the nonprofit endowment of nonprofit corporations. But what you can do is you can tax, perhaps, expansion. When Yale buys a private house and turns it into something. And They've takes been known off, to do that. Right, and takes it off the tax rolls, which is basically uh, East Rock neighborhood, is Yale now, uh, in large part. Y- y- you can say, like, we're going to tax some of that. We're going to tax that transaction, right? You can't tax them going forward. We may be able to tax that transaction. When Wesleyan buys up an entire neighborhood and uses it for university housing, right, that's a function that was a private function and is now a university function. Right? So there are reasons for it to be tax-free, and we see problems at universities that don't buy housing as much as you see problems in neighborhoods where universities buy entire places and entire neighborhoods. But I, all, all I'm saying is that's the area to look, university expansion rather than endowments. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think going after the endowment is, to, you know, smacks of desperation is not, you know, it doesn't even really cover it, does it? I mean, it's, they see a big pot of money sitting there and think we could have some of that. And it's, it, it's just not, it, it demonstrates how... There's a lack of creativity, I think, and a lack of big-picture thinking, too. I was struck by a a, a quote I saw in The Current. I didn't hear him say it, so I apologize if I got it wrong, but Senator Kevin Whitcoe said to The Current yesterday, sometimes when you fix the small things, the big things fix themselves. And I think that's kind of emblematic of the thinking at the Capitol, which I think a lot of taxpayers are scratching their heads about. You know, (laughs) you kind of have to fix the big things. I'm sorry, but, you know, tinkering around the edges isn't going to work. That's actually flipped on its head a little bit. (laughs) Sometimes you fix the big things. The small things actually uh, take care of themselves. I mean, your alma mater column, they're going to go up to this big pot of money. Well, yeah, I'm actually sort of thinking that the person with the most interesting opinions about this might be the person who's asking us the questions right now. Maybe we can hear a little bit from you at the end of all this. But... um, I, I will just say this: that yeah, just Danny kind of glided past this, but I mean, <laughs> as an in, as an indication of Yale's primacy in here in the state of Connecticut, it is mentioned by name in Article Eight, Section Three of the state constitution. <laughs> Yale is mentioned in the constitution, which has made it very difficult in the past for for government. I mean, in fact, I think at the level of the city, they have tried to claw some money out of Yale, and they lose the cases because it's in the constitution. So, I mean, I don't even quite understand what Marty Looney was thinking in terms of bringing this up. It wouldn't be worth as an immediate source of revenue because you'd be in court for a really long time. Yale can hire really expensive lawyers and they probably win too. So, you know, so what is, and meanwhile, somebody, one of the newspapers compared him to the penguin in Batman, which, <laughs> which is very mean and I wish I'd thought of it. Well, but, um, <laughs> but, it, you know, so I, I, to, to the point I think that we're all making around yeah. here, there, there's more conciliatory ways of having all of these conversations. All of these conversations uh, are taking place in what Caesar Milan calls the red zone. Everybody's kind of barking at everybody else, state employees at the governor of the legislature. And, and this is a way of barking at Yale. This was not the right way to open up a conversation about this with Yale. But what do you think about this? Because you've done shows about this. Well, here's, here's one of the things that's interesting. I mean, you, you talk about uh, Yale actually being part of the, the Connecticut Constitution, right? Yale been around since 1701. Connecticut's been around as a state for how long? I, I think that one of the things that's, that's unusual to me about this is, is the sense that Yale University does more for the city of New Haven than most universities or corporate citizens do for any given place that they are. 
Yale University is pretty much New Haven. All the stuff that has happened around the revitalization of Yale, all the biotech, it all it's because Yale's there. And am I wrong about that, Danny? You're slightly you're 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 half right and you're half wrong. Yale University is not the entity that's doing the good. It is the people who are at Yale who ah, are doing the good. Y- yes, of course. Yale why, why are they Yale is still amassing great wealth, it, while it, the people who are in, affiliated with it, students, professors, graduate students, so are the ones that are ma- the machine at, at, in New Haven. And, and look, and and not to carry water for this for this big university, which doesn't pay taxes in the way that a lot of other uh, places would pay taxes, and certainly has in many ways shown itself to be a, a bit of a gorilla in the room. It does buy up a lot of properties. Sometimes it can be a landlord that people don't like to deal with. Sometimes dealing with its unions isn't exactly easy for, for the people. The town-gown relations haven't always been good. But, but Danny, is there a sense that going after Yale University in this way sort of negates an awful lot of good that Yale is able to do in and around that community, it just it doesn't make sense from a political standpoint because you know that it's never going to happen legally. But just from a political standpoint, why do you even do this? That's well, and the irony is that it was raised by uh, the senator who represents New Haven. Uh, it wasn't raised by the governor. It wasn't raised by somebody who's actually in charge of, in fact, raising money. Uh, so, again, I think it's it, it's it's exactly what I think we're all saying here. This is this is a, a desperation move. It's a red zone move. Uh, there is a sense that Yale has an enormous amount of money, uh, which you know they do a, a twenty-six billion dollar endowment. They have Swens and the genius, uh, you know, running the show over there. And and it, 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 there's a sense that there's got to be a way that this massive wealth behind an ivory tower can get to the rest of us. Well, that's, it, that's the sense. And one thing that, that I've heard, though, in, in commentaries and in, in newspaper articles, Harry, is, is people saying – the fact is, is that Yale has been pretty genius in how it's dealt with its endowment. Obviously, they've got a lot of money. They've got an awful lot of smart people. Yale continually makes good business decisions. They run a very good business. That's why they've got a $26 billion endowment. The state of Connecticut seems to not be, be able to run its business the same way. Right. And I suppose that's, that might be one reason in which you know raising revenues kind of become a third rail in this budget debate. You know, And maybe that's one positive thing about how this – idea having been opened is it can we look at other ways of perhaps balancing this budget by more than just cutting social services can we look at ways creative ways to raise revenue Maybe uh, that- I, I, well, rich is actually calling from yale university he has an idea rich what's on your mind well i just wanted to share john that i think you're, you're right that uh, yale does more than virtually any other university in the country to help its hometown yale is deeply committed to the future of new haven and has been so for the past 20 years and, Dan, it isn't just the people at Yale who are doing this, but this is from the very top of the institution, an institutional initiative reflected in our voluntary payments to the city, reflected in our support being the principal funder of New Haven Promise, reflected in our homebuyer program. That's where we spent $28 million to encourage Yale employees to buy houses in New Haven. And it's required, especially with our role in promoting uh, biotech startups in the state, it's required a real cultural change, a real work. It's a, a determined effort on the part of the university to work with faculty to think about innovation. And we, uh, and the other point is that we do pay property taxes. When we acquire a property and we, if it's a commercial property, we pay property taxes. We're currently the fifth largest property tax or in the, property taxpayer in the city of New Haven. Our view, the real contribution that Yale can make to rebuilding the state economy is to continue to educate leaders, to continue to start companies here well, in New Haven. Wait, hey, 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 Rich, I, I just want to ask you two questions. Yeah. One is you're affiliated with the university. What's your role there? Uh, so I, I handle federal and state relations for Yale. And, and, and secondly, you said that uh, Yale is the fifth largest property taxpayer in, in, in the, the city? city of New Haven. Is, is it the largest property holder in the city of New Haven? 
That I'd have to check and tell you that. Okay. I, I, I want to put you – thank you very much for your phone call. Dan Har, quick response. I want to add that they also have free admission to two of the best five museums, uh, the best yeah. five art museums uh, in the state. I wonder who's putting money in those Lucite boxes, but those are great museums and they're free. I, I just would say that, I mean, I think all of Dan Har's uh, proposals warrant at least the formation of study groups within the legislature, including the, his latest one about the property transfer notion. I will say that just having had dinner last night with a commercial real estate guy or a real estate developer guy – in New Haven, um, I mean, what all the, everything that we're describing has resulted in this really kind of boom market there, where existing buildings are being appraised and sold at you know fifteen twenty percent of what, what what their book value seemed to be and stuff. So, um, I mean, I I still think what you're talking about, Danny, is worth looking into. But it's also that's another thing that seems to drive the New Haven economy forward is is all that migration into East Rock and stuff like that. Not terribly surprisingly, the Wall Street Journal criticized the Yale uh, move and said. Uh, there's no entity too small to tax in Connecticut, according to the, the journal. Pointed to other nonprofits that it thinks could be targeted, including Fairfield University. Now, that school is eyeing the soon-to-be-vacant headquarters of General Electric, which is moving to Boston. Harriet Jones spoke recently to Fairfield University's Executive Vice President Kevin Lawler. We're a citizen of the Fairfield uh, County area. We want to see that uh, space freed up by General Electric be used for uh, good purposes and to the extent we can contribute to an overall development that's positive for the area, then we want to be part of that, too. Okay, so what happens this GE headquarters? Does Fairfield University take it over? No, not exactly, um, which, you know, the town of Fairfield is probably pretty pleased about because they don't want to see it taken off the tax rolls in the same way that uh, Yale is off the tax rolls. Um, it's a 68-acre campus. It is GE has been the largest taxpayer for the town for pretty much all the time it's been there. Um, What's happening with – there is no deal as yet, but GE is talking to Kleban Properties, which is a private developer that wants to put in like a mixed-use development there, um, retail, uh, office space, companies, educational use. They've been talking to Fairfield University. They want Fairfield U to come in with them to provide you know, some credibility to the development to say what Fairfield thinks they'll put in there is uh, they may put their business incubator in there. They may expand into leadership education, executive education, and they may put that unit there. So um, it, it's going to be, I think, overall a private development, but Fairfield University will take, you know, will be in a partnership. Um, it, there was some talk about Sacred Heart University just sort of getting the thing handed over to them by, by General Electric. That That is unlikely to happen at this point? We, I mean, honestly, we don't really know because GE hasn't come to a decision. They haven't announced anything. We know they're in talks with Cleveland, but there is no deal yet. Um, who knows? And if yeah, if that happens, if somehow or other GE gives it to a nonprofit for its use, well, then that it gets back into this the <laughs> tax pattern, rolls problem. The pattern is clear here. The old Hubble uh, uh, headquarters along the Merritt is now Quinnip- is it Quinnipiac? I believe it is Quinnipiac. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's off the tax rolls. The uh, the UConn campus in West Hartford is apparently being sold to a uh, Chinese private education group. Uh, the pattern is clear. Education is the growth industry in this country. The idea behind tax policy is to equitably, equitably raise levies from activity across the economy to the extent that the old role of educating citizens as a nonprofit activity expands into an industry. You have to relook at how you raise money. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think we're all in agreement here that, that what's considered tax-exempt property right now needs a rethink, um, and it's certainly part of the Luke Bronin initiative at the state capitol, too. You know, I mean, Hartford 
long before all these other places <laughs> were being choked to death by their tax on, taxes on property, Hartford was. And, and so, yeah, we got to rethink the, the whole equation. If we're talking about corporate headquarters, uh, others are in the news as well. Starwood Hotels is up for sale. What happens with Starwood? Yes, who knows? That's kind of exciting right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, and who are the bidders for this? It's who- a bidding war. So Marriott thought, um, Marriott, which is headquartered in Maryland, um, also a huge hotel group here, it thought last November it was a done deal. It had a deal with Starwood. It was going to buy. It was going to create this huge hotel group. I think the largest hotel group in the U.S. It would have been. Um, and then just a few weeks ago, Anbang, which is an, a Chinese insurance group, decided to put in a higher bid. And Starwood said, well, it's a higher bid. We've got to go look at it. And since then, we've had two um, more rounds of bidding. Um, and it, Anbang has the highest bid at the moment, so Starwood's looking at it. It's an interesting question, what would be better for Connecticut? Because Starwood has its headquarters in Stamford, lots of employees, big headquarters building. If Marriott takes it over, it's pretty much said, you know, not quite in so many words, but it has said it will be headquartered in Maryland. Probably that Stamford headquarters goes away. If Anbang takes it over, it's, you know, it's much more likely that they would keep that headquarters in Stamford. Dan, one of the one of the the positive corollaries of this is that a generation ago there were a lot of Americans wringing their hands when foreign buyers, especially going way back to the '80s when <laughs> Japanese buyers bought Rockefeller Center, and oh my God, people were upset. And turns out they didn't move Rockefeller Center anywhere; it stayed right where it was. And we're now realizing that it is better when foreign investors come in than when domestic investors come in for precisely the reason Harry just said. Although I kind of dread Donald Trump getting a hold of this story just because we're going to have to listen to him to say, and bang, and bang. <laughs> I can make a better deal. And bang's going to come in here <laughs> and take over our stuff. And bang. Okay, well, there's another company that has decided to keep its headquarters in Connecticut. Bob's Discount Furniture will build and expand in Manchester. Here's founder and president emeritus Bob Kaufman speaking at a press conference yesterday. I got into business like most small business people to buy myself a job. And the fact that it has resulted in so much employment is just such a joy. You know, you understand capitalism on a real base level. Uh, the State Department of Economic and Community Development provides a 10-year, $7 million low-interest loan to support the project. Uh, so Bob's Discount Furniture stays in Connecticut, Colin. That's a good thing. Yeah, and in some ways, I, I, I'm, I'm probably being oversimplistic uh, here, but in some ways, all the conversations we're having here kind of illustrate an important point, which is it's easier to work with and control a smaller homegrown kind of business than it is to affect. I mean, Starwood is going to do whatever, whoever buys Star, they're going to do whatever they're going to do. It's like we're trying to fly a kite that's the size of half the sky. It's going to just pull us, uh, you know, any way it wants to go. Whereas, and I actually do think in terms of whatever incentives we have left to give out, which are probably close to zero in, in terms of, uh, our entire economic development policy, directing it at small business, at startups, at small businesses that we have that have an identification already with where we are, um, is probably going to be a lot more productive than working with multinational corporations, which are going to do whatever they – I mean, we know GE was going to move to some people to Boston no matter what we did. We could have turned into Santa Claus. They're just going to do that. And, and our ability to affect their business strategy is probably overstated by everybody. But with something like Bob's, yeah, you could work with them. If you lose Bob's, turn out the lights. Yeah. <laughs> if you lose Bob's, turn out. These are Connecticut guys, Gene Rosenberg and Bob Kaufman, that started this company. It's just, it's a Connecticut, it's exactly what Colin said. However, 
However, it's $100 a job when you look at uh, how the deal could shake out in terms of all the grants and deals. That's a fairly rich package that Connecticut paid to keep one of its own. And it, it's kind of ironic to hear Bob saying that's how capitalism works, as he's taking a $10 million <laughs> state loan. That is how capitalism so. works. I guess <laughs> today that's how capitalism works. Look, before we have to take a break, let's just try to find some, some revenues somewhere, right? I mean, there's, there's lots of revenue that we need to raise in the state, clearly. Um, some advocates are pushing for another way to close some of the state's uh, tax uh, deficits, closing the carried interest loophole. This is something, Harriet, that you've been covering, and I don't know if this has any chance whatsoever of going anywhere. I doubt it. Yeah. So what exactly, <laughs> However, what, are, what are we talking know, about? You know, it's an interesting idea. I don't see why the idea shouldn't be floated, and we shouldn't talk about it. So <laughs> uh, carried interest is um, when um, investment managers invest people's money, and the income that they get is a cut of whatever the investment, the interest is, that's taxed differently than if it was income. It's not taxed at income tax rate. It's taxed at capital gains rate, much lower, 20%. Um, And so many people say if we change the way we look at that income and we said, well, that's really your salary, that's income, we're going to tax it at an income tax rate, that would, according to some advocates last week at the state capitol, it would net Connecticut $535 million more each year. Okay. Well, that's that's a little bit of money, Dan Dan Har. I, I've been stretching during the last twenty seconds or so to try and think of something that would be the stupidest possible move Connecticut would make. I guess tearing down the old state house and paving it over, which nobody would ever imagine might happen, except that it did in 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 nineteen seventy six, would be up there. Maybe tearing down. What's the most precious thing in Connecticut? Going across the street to the state library and just taking everything out of it and burning it in a big pile. I think that that that. Closing the carried interest loophole. First of all, it it would be hard to imagine a single stupider thing to do. These are the things that are keeping Connecticut afloat, these hedge funds. I don't like the fact that Ray Dalio makes a billion dollars a year in a bad year any more than anybody else does. But the taxes that they pay here are so astronomically large and the ability for them to move is so easy that – for Connecticut to uniquely tax hedge funds, we should be cutting taxes on hedge but, funds, but, but, ugly but. as it is. So New York has introduced legislation that says we will we will close the loophole if surrounding states do. So is there a case to be made that we can make a regional compact so they can't move? And here's the other thing. They may have federal cover for it next year because both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump's plans – close the carried interest loophole. In fact, it's the only piece of policy that I can imagine that Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and Jeb Bush all agree on. But I think that's the regional compact. The regional compact is the United States. As long as we're in a supermarket here, the way Danny's talking about, you really have a problem with stuff like this. It makes total sense. I mean, you know, for people like me who don't understand this stuff all that well, we're really talking about, you know, whenever Warren Buffett says that his secretary is paying a higher tax rate than he is, that's effectively what we're talking about, right? That, you know, so because of the, our eagerness to see capital move around, we effectively um, reward people for sitting on their butts as opposed to doing hard work. Um, and so the taking argument— Taking a risk, they would say. Yeah, taking a risk. <laughs> but I mean, you know, just watching stuff appreciate. And But so, but that's the point. The, the people who want to continue the carried interest loophole say— they're basically saying, oh, no, we're basically sitting on our butts. We're not doing real hard work right now because if we were doing really hard work, then you'd have to tax it as income. So we're basically sitting on our butts watching things appreciate. I mean, that's the argument they make at this particular moment when they want to keep this loophole in place. If you think Florida Governor Rick Scott 
was on the scene <laughs> based on a, a Yale endowment tax. <laughs> Florida is a fine place for, for, for hedge funds. There's nothing wrong with Florida. He'll, he'll be up here in the Northeast. It absolutely has to be done nationally. There is no substitute. And I don't believe Donald Trump. When he, I don't think Donald Trump knows what, what he's talking about when he says he's going to do X, Y, and Z. It's very difficult to get this done. There's a lot of money behind keeping the tax code the way it is. However, it has to be done nationally if it's going to be done at all. That's the end of the discussion. But, but that's the end of the – That's well, it. There's no, there's no reason. <laughs> this is nuts. Okay. This is well, crazy. That's I guess no, we're going to go to break then. Mic drop. I, I don't, drop. I don't know what else to say. Um, we do have to take a break, and we're going to uh, thank Harry Jones, WMPR's business editor, who's got to get off to other things. Thanks so much, Harriet. You're very welcome. Uh, thanks also to Dan Har uh, from the Hartford Current. You're going to stay right here, Dan, as, as well as Colin McEnroe, host of the Colin McEnroe show on WNPR. We'll take a closer look at whether or not any businesses or people really are going to flee the state because of our quote-unquote bad business climate. We're going to talk about some other things in the news as well on The Wheelhouse here on Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's show, as I mentioned earlier, we'll be in Winstead, my hometown, at the American Museum of Tort Law in Winstead, Connecticut, with Ralph Nader, longtime consumer advocate, of course, who founded the American Museum of Tort Law last year. We'll be talking to him about his museum and also get some of his thoughts in the 2016 presidential race. Hope you can join us there. If you want to find out more, go to our Facebook page at Where We Live. Uh, joining us today in the wheelhouse is Dan Haar. He's a columnist for the Hartford Current. Colin McEnroe, the host of the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Before we get into just a couple other things, and it seems like all of our topics today, Danny, are, are connected. Just there's been this this feeling over the years that as Connecticut struggles with its budget deficits and we see things like GE deciding to move, uh, we hear over and over again that we are a very high-tax state, that wealth will begin to flee Connecticut, that we will have very, very rich people who pay income taxes, people who run hedge funds, uh, people who just have other places where they can do their businesses going elsewhere to find greener pastures. As we've talked about so far, the governor of Florida has already said, hey, Yale University, you can come south too if Connecticut's going to start taxing you. Is there anything to this myth, or maybe it's not a myth, that Connecticut and the way it's running itself right now is going to run people out of state to places like Florida? Yes. I think that uh, the, the problem is that it doesn't take very many people to move to have to make a big difference. As we, I think, discussed the last time I was here, we had the, the, uh, the top 2,000 taxpayers pay something like 23 percent of the state income tax. Uh, I may have the numbers a little bit wrong, maybe 17 percent. Uh, so in the aggregate, uh, and I think the Connecticut Mirror did a nice piece of work yesterday with the Trends CT look at the IRS data as to the wealth of who's coming and going, that A is inconclusive because it only went up through 2013, uh, and B, it looks at the big picture of numbers of people. Unfortunately, the problem is that if three or 400 people, which is just a blip in the total population, decide to relocate their domicile, that's a big hit. And Colin, I mean, is, is this something we should really be worried about as a state? I think we should be worried about it. I, I think, once again, I mean, I'm going to kind of say the same thing. It's an argument for prioritizing. I mean, you really kind of have to identify what kind of business climate is Connecticut as opposed to or as distinct from Florida or Texas or something. Like, what can we reasonably expect to have here? And then how do we create the infrastructure and the environment that's conducive to that? Uh, and part of that, obviously, is probably investing in, in smaller operations that may grow as well. But I, I think you have to pick some priorities. 
and say, you know, and obviously biosciences seems to have been one of them already, but uh, pick some pick some priorities and develop those and understand you probably won't be able to keep everybody. It is a supermarket. People go shopping. Uh, and there, with some of these big companies, there may be nothing you could ever say to them that will keep them from shopping someplace else. Uh, one of the, the stories that we've covered over the years and where we live more than anything else has been um, – the fact that people do move, whether or not they graduate college and leave and go someplace south for warmer weather or they take their businesses elsewhere. We've often checked in with states like Georgia and North Carolina that have grown substantially over the years as Connecticut has just tried to, to hang on. But both of those states right now are facing backlash for their attempts to infringe on uh, same-sex marriages and transgender rights. Uh, they're drawing the ire of huge corporations, including Disney. Georgia's governor vetoed the religious liberty bill, but North Carolina's governor supported and signed that state's bill, which restricts chan- transgender rights. That state's attorney general has now called that a national embarrassment of uh, this law and said that he won't defend the state against lawsuits. I don't know, Colin, it, one of the first shows we ever did on Where We Live is how young people are moving south and Biotech jobs are moving to the North Carolina Triangle, and we, you know, we dump on Connecticut an awful lot, but then we see something like this, and we go, you know what? Connecticut's not North Carolina. Connecticut is not saying, I just don't want a whole bunch of people in my state because I'm going to pass a law like this. Well, it goes back to Danny's previous analogy of, like, what's the dumbest thing you could do in Connecticut? Well, what's the dumbest thing you could do in some of these other states, which is to, to let, uh, in fact, these kinds of impulses run wild? And, I mean, we may be pricing ourselves out of the market uh, economically. They may be pricing themselves out of the market with social policies, social policies that are so grotesquely unfriendly to an emergent class of people who may also be able to pick and choose where they go to work. And th- that also, in terms of positioning, it, it, but it also, you could argue, that it just intensifies the point I was making before, that Connecticut is a climate distinct from Georgia or North Carolina or Florida. So what are some things that are Connecticut about Connecticut? Let's emphasize those things. If these people want to be so stupid as to seem inhospitable to gay and lesbian people, then so be it. It just intensifies those dis- those distinctions. You could make an argument that the entire social homogenation effects of the Warren court in the 60s led to the demise of the North because it enabled it, – it stopped enabling the, the backward South to be the backward South. Uh, and then there emerged a thing called the New South. But there's always under the surface of the New South the, the, the sort of uh, what we consider antisocial, anti-progressive uh, behaviors. But that's very smug and it's getting late in the game for us to cling to that. Uh, because it's but, just it, it's it's it, yes, it's true that those policies in the South keep people from moving there, but it's a lesser and lesser factor as national social policy becomes homogenous. Yeah, no, I I understand that. I guess it gets to one of my last points. I've just I've seen this coming up in the news an awful lot. Our own Jeff Cohen did a story for NPR not so long ago about a local hospital that's changing the way it's dealing with mothers who addict who are addicted to opioids and have given birth to newborn children who are addicted. Right, and the old way to look at it is the mother's the problem. Keep her as far away from this baby as possible. And what they found is that actually treating the mother like a human who's made mistakes and putting that mother with the baby actually has better health outcomes. And I see this over and over again, Dan. And I just I wonder if there's something to this notion that some sort of um, compassion, 
equity, this notion that, that Connecticut often has fostered in some of its social experiments, is something that is exportable, is something that would get people to come here over a state when you just get a better tax deal or some other crap? Well, of course, if you don't prosecute people who are only 23 because their brains haven't fully formed in, in crimes, that's yet another type of thing we're talking yes. about. Does that, it does attract people. I'm not sure whether it attracts the people we want, but it definitely attracts people. And it is a, there is something to be said for a, a, a compassionate uh, uh, climate in a state. Yes. Compassionate Connecticut, Colin. Well, look, I, you know, not to do an advertisement for this, but I attend a, a church that's a Baptist evangelical church that is LGBTQ friendly. We have gay pastors. So if you're gay and you still want to be Baptist and an evangelical and you can't work that out in North Carolina, come on up. We got a place for you. Everybody's welcome. <laughs> oh, but, but of course, n- not all is, is well in the land of Compassionate Connecticut, Colin. I'll let you end for the last minute, minute and a half on another story. <laughs> right. So, uh, in the Poor people. Uh, one thing we know is that Pez probably won't relocate uh, unless there's a place called Grape, North Carolina, because they're in Orange, Connecticut. And, like, you know, why would they leave? You know. <laughs> Again, this is Pez. This is the candy maker with the little dispensers. And we know they know how to run an Easter egg hunt. Right. So they, so they try to have this Easter egg hunt, and it turns out that we are not all that civilized or compassionate. <laughs> it turns out that people show up with their kids, and there were these kind of timed releases so the little kids would get out there first. And, and these parents just ignored it, and there was this – I mean, the kids are going to be doing these kind of Vietnam narratives later, like I was two clicks away from the egg, and Bobby went down. And, you know, the kids were getting bloody noses, and their baskets were being broken. And poor Paz. I mean – Pez was trying to do something nice, you know, and so meanwhile their name becomes associated with this debacle that's being covered like in British newspapers now, uh, and now it's been announced that the police will – the police insist <laughs> on being present at future Easter egg hunts. And I keep thinking, do these people like really need eggs that badly? I mean they're like, you know, I don't know what they are a dozen right now, but they're not that expensive. You can go get them very, very, very cheap at Stop and Shop. You know, people – the, the, the congealing factor here is, is that – that, that people are starting to realize that we're a pretty chaotic society uh, and, and living with that. And, and that I think I can somehow tie that back in with the budget and say there's an acceptance <laughs> here that some of the really nasty stuff that's happening at places like Pez and the state capitol is just stuff that we're going to have to live with. I just got a text from Kathy Megan, my colleague at The Current. She's at the hearing at UConn over the closing of the Torrington campus. The Torrington mayor is there very upset talking about social justice, but there's not the crowds we would have seen just a couple of years ago. There is an acceptance of things that are problematic. There's an acceptance of things that are problematic. More of, of, of Dan Hart. You're so and, happy when you came. I, I, I don't know like, how it is. And now we're sitting next to you, Colin. The, the end of America as we know it. Dan Hart, yeah. columnist for the Hartford Current. Thank you so much, Danny, for your sunshiny view. Oh, boy. Thank you. And thanks to Colin McEnroe, host of the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Thank you, Colin. Thank you, Mr. Nankowski. Tucker Ives, as always, produces our program. Uh, Lydia Brown also uh, produces uh, Where We Live, along with Kyle Wolf, our technical producer, Heather Brandon, our digital editor, the executive producer of Where We Live, Katie Solarski. Thanks to Ben Esty and Tiana Duquette, who are our interns. Continue this conversation online. Go to wnpr.org slash where we live. I'm John Dankowski. Thanks for joining us.